0: I encourage you to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1, please. Colossians chapter 1. Our focus this morning is going to be um, on verses, 21 22 and 23 21 22 and 23 but we will read from verse 1 all the way through 23 1 through 23 of chapter 1 hear God's word Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother To the saints and faithful brothers in in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now our focus for the day. And you who were who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, your word is a gift. It is a, uh, a precious gift, for in it you reveal yourself to us. So Lord, I, I pray that this morning, by your Spirit, that you will so work in our minds, in our hearts, that we will desire to be more like Christ Jesus, that we will remember who you are, and who we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you remove all distractions so that we can hear you this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I did dumb things. Some things that should never be shared. But I had a friend who had a home His parents had a home on one of the sister lakes in in Michigan. And one of the things that we would do is we would go to the lake, and next door to his home, he had a a neighbor who owned a boat. And uh, this boat had some some good speed. And uh, the whole purpose of us going to the lake was to see if we could outdo one another in staying on the tube as long as possible. So the goal was, do not let go of the rope. You stay on this baby no matter what, because the goal was to outdo the last one who has kind of made the record, right? And so it, his dad, my friend's dad, I won't mention his name because he's in our Dutch, some Dutch community that some of you might know, so I'll refrain from using names, but his dad was a professional boat driver. Not by trade, but because they owned a lake home. So he knew how to do corners and make you all of a sudden there's slack in the line, and all of a sudden, bam, you're off, and you would just your arms would almost come out of their sockets, and you would be flying all the way around on the edge, and you're scared to death because all of a sudden you're almost in the front of the boat, and then all of a sudden there's this catch up thing, and the goal was don't. Let go of the rope. Don't let go. Well, I remember my friend made one fatal error. He should have let go of the rope. There was a point where the tube started doing one of these on the sides, and he thought that he could get enough weight to turn back so that he could stay on and beat the record. Well, just enough wave and speed caught the swimsuit. <laughs> let go of the rope, right? It was at the moment where we saw the moon shining in fresh and new ways. And so there's also all of the guys on the back of the boat going, let go of the rope! Let go of the rope! And he let go. There's more to the story, but there's... As guys, you know, we kind of do the circling around. What's up? Come on! Keep Anyway... Letting go of the rope is what many of us, by nature, want to do. When the, when the going gets hard, we just want to do what? I'm done. I, I just want to throw up my arms and just let go of, of whatever it seems, seems to be holding me down and bearing me, keeping me attached, tethered onto something, right? Right? So this morning, we're concluding our first section in Colossians, where we've been talking about Christ as the very core, the one who tethers us, who holds us together. And in this section, after this section, we're going to move on to our second, the orbit around the core of Christ. And this orbit will help us understand what a Jesus-centered ministry will look like. But I kind of want to take you back in time and let you see, bring you up and up to speed as to what we have seen so far in chapter 1. First we saw this broad overview of the book pointing us, identifying Jesus Christ as the very center. He's the very center of the universe, he's the very center of everything. We saw how our present culture today is not much different than the culture that was going on in Colossae thousands of years ago. We are very much like the church in Colossae. We also saw, that the relevance of the gospel, saw the relevance of the gospel to our everyday lives. It was not just for them. It is, this is a message also for us. We saw how we should be praying for one another, especially those that we love deeply. We saw how Jesus is supreme over everything. And all of us, all of us are going to glorify him in either how we repent of our sins Or by the judgment of our sins. God is going to be glorified in one of those two ways. We also learn to embrace dependency. Embrace dependency. Embrace our powerless. And we we embrace the true value of Jesus Christ. And said, I need you. I'm dependent on you. I'm powerless, therefore I need you. And last week, we learned that at the heart of all of this is simply to say, when I can't, Jesus can. He's able. So my aim of chapter one has been to help us connect our lives to, to the centrality of Jesus Christ. And, it, and I've been trying to help you understand that Jesus is the core and that we need to absolutely deal with it. He doesn't need your affirmation. He doesn't need a vote. He doesn't need anything like that. He simply is the center of everything. So our passage this morning kind of draws this idea to a close and brings us back to the gospel, reminding us to not let go. You see, this was the very temptation in the church in Colossae to slowly drift from the centrality of Christ and to slowly drift from his gospel. And to be sure to do this, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you to do two things. One, do not forget. And two, do not let go. So those are the two major points. Do not forget and do not let go. So here's, here's the first. We see this in verses 21 and 22. They're just a reminder of why the gospel is incredibly important. The word gospel means what? Anybody? Good news. It means good news. And it's a single word used to capture the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to make a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He stood in our place. He was our substitute. For our sins. And the, and the gospel is a message that God, through Christ's death, can forgive you of your sins and make you a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the most important decision that you can make is not related to your job, is not related to your spouse, is not related to your children, is not related to your 401k or 403b or whatever it is that you might have some money in. It's not tied up into that. The most important decision you can ever make is one that you admit that you are a sinner and you throw yourself on Christ and His mercy, asking Him, Pleading with him to be your Lord and your Savior. And as strange as this may seem, over time, even over a week or within hours, we can begin to forget the amazing reality of what God did in a moment. Somehow, Jesus can become too common or too familiar. And we might live as though we have forgotten the miracle that has happened deep within us. Therefore, Paul tells the church in Colossae, and he tells us that we should never forget our past, we should never forget the price that was paid, and we should never forget even the purpose of the gospel. And it's good for our hearts to even rehearse that. So first, let's do something here. So this is going to be a vulnerable moment. Okay? I want you to think of the worst sin that you have ever committed. No, really all of you. Think of the worst sin that you have ever committed. And in 30 seconds, I'm going to ask a few of you to stand up and share that very sin publicly. Some of you, I can see in your eyes, are freaking out like, don't pick me. You're kind of pitting out in this moment. I'm not really going to ask you. But I want you to remember the feeling that has raced through your heart when you consider the possibility of having to share your most heinous sin there's something valuable and there's something even right about a balanced view of your past, right? It's too easy for us to forget how bad our spiritual condition really was before we met Christ, before he encountered us. Certainly we should not be captivated by our past, right? We shouldn't be living there and dwelling there. And we shouldn't allow it to even control our present, right? Our past should not determine our future. But we should never forget where we have been delivered from or what we've been delivered from. Therefore, it's helpful uh, for Paul to remind us of our past. Here he, He says it kind of this way, you know, the first problem that you have is you have an alienated or a hostile disposition. The text says that the problem was with our mind, alienated and hostile in our mind. Some of you are going, I'm really a kind, genteel kind of person. Uh, there's nothing alienated or alien about me. There's especially nothing hostile. I, I rarely go off. I never flip, really flip out. So, what is this talking about? Well, the, the word for mind here means more than just your brain or what you think about. It refers to the way that you the way that you think or the intention of your life. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, in that the, the translators use the word mind to describe your heart. You could think of it like a, your disposition or the bent of your will. When we talk about you've been hostile or alienated in your mind, it's t- Paul is talking about what is really the disposition or the the will, the bent of your heart. And the text tells us that when it came to God, our natural bent, our natural disposition was being alienated and hostile. To be alienated means that there was a huge barrier between you and God. It means that you don't belong, that you don't fit, and it's not natural for you to be where you are. It's not natural. You're alienated. But it's even worse because we are also described as hostile, which means that you are an enemy, you are hateful, and you are opposed to God. In other words, everyone's past, everyone's past is exactly the same. It kind of levels the playing field, right? We're all alienated and we're all hostile to God. We all started as enemies of God. And so the heart of every man, every woman, every child is set against God. There's no one in this room and no one in the world who's just neutral. Secondly, Paul expresses that the rebellion is taking up specific sins. That's why the text says we were doing evil deeds. The evil deeds were a product of an alienated and a hostile mind towards God. Your sins are a byproduct of your condition. So sins like lust, greed, immorality, drunkenness, covetousness are much more than just sins that violate God's word. No, they are weapons of our rebellious warfare. Your sins are weapons are weapons of your rebellious warfare. They are a declaration that we will not be ruled by God. You see, lust lust wasn't just your problem. Rather, lust was the arms that you take up against God. Covetousness is not just a problem. It is the arms that you take up against God. Greed is not just a problem. It's the arms that you say, God, that is not enough. Therefore, I must have more and hoard more. It is your arms against God. C.S. Lewis says in his amazing book, Mere Christianity, he says this, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. The reality is that you and me, today, tomorrow, the rest of our lives, are not just needing a tweak, a little bit of self-improvement. The reality is, every day, you and I need to lay down our arms of rebellion against God. That's ultimately what we need. So, I want you to go back to that sin that I, you know, I kind of said I want you to share that sin publicly. Do you remember the, maybe the embarrassment, maybe there was a little bit of heat going on as you're thinking about that sin? Well, that sin is the least of your problems. That sin was merely the outward expression of something far worse. And what's far worse? A heart that is set against God. And it is really important to never forget what God has saved you from. And ultimately, He saved Himself, you from Himself. The wrath of God. But not only should we be thinking about um, our past, we should also be thinking about the price of the Gospel. Namely, that it was Christ's Suffering death that created the possibility of even reconciliation between God and his enemies. It was Christ's death that made this all possible. Last week, we addressed two words. Do you remember what the two words it, that we talked about when it came to reconciliation? There's a podcast that you can be following for those who are a little slower in the uptake. It, the, the two words were blood and cross, Right? blood and cross his lifeblood was shed and the cross he bore bore shame for on our behalf and we see here the price was is emphasized in two more words flesh and death to bring reconciliation between god and mankind jesus hung between heaven and earth absorbing the wrath of god so that god's justice could be satisfied and we could be forgiven So there's two things that should motivate you not to forget. It is the despicable nature of your rebellion against God and the indescribable worth of Jesus Christ who was murdered to bring you back to God. And it's best that we not forget these two things. But finally we see a great reminder regarding the purpose of the gospel. That we can't forget the purpose of the gospel. Whenever you see words in the text that say, in order that, in order that, that should be kind of your cue. So if you're a Bible study person, you like to read and write in your Bible, whenever you see an in order that or so that, circle it. Because what's following is important. It, it, it communicates to you that there, there's a purpose statement is coming. So in verse, 20, verse 22 captures the purpose of redemption with this glorious grace-filled statement. He says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in Him. So the purpose of redemption is to present you holy, blameless. Can you... Just kind of imagine, Jesus died on the cross for the purpose to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before before him. So this is the goal, this is the purpose, this is the end game of the gospel. To present you as something you can never be without Christ. His death is to present you as something you can never be on your own without his work. So again, it kind of brings you back to the centrality of Christ, right? Say, I need him. It's impossible for me to be anything else other than what I am without the work of Christ. I need Christ. Again, it just says, I'm utterly dependent on you. I'm powerless. I can't do anything. Jesus, I need you because I will always be who I am without your work. And with his work, we are going to be holy and blameless and above reproach in Him, before Christ. So it's good to remember where you've come from, but it's also good to be reminded about what your future holds, right? There will come a day where we will all stand before God. And our day in court, our day in court, we will be standing before the holy gaze of God. And on that day, God's not going to say to St. Peter, hey, take the Bible down to him, down to Paul, and tell him to raise his right hand and repeat after me. There's not going to be the, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, oh God. There's, there's not going to be that on that day, because you will not need to testify at all. There, there's not going to be any kind of discovery, hearing. There's not going to be any emotions. There's not going to be any kind of depositions. And no one will lie because God knows everything about you. Knows absolutely everything. Can you imagine that? You are going to be standing bare before God. And He will see absolutely everything. Everything. He will know you more intimately than your best friend or your spouse or your parents could ever know you. He will know the deepest thoughts, the real inclination of your heart. He will know your your hidden, your most hidden secrets and sins. You will stand bare before a holy God. But I want to remind you that the aim of the Gospel is you on that day is to prepare you to stand before God. The gospel changes your standing before God such that even though you were at one time God's enemies and you were involved in a heart-based insurrection against Him, you are declared holy. In other words, you are declared morally pure. You are going to be... Uh, you are going to be declared blameless, free from any kind of blame. There's no more blame as you stand before God. And you are going to be declared above reproach. You are going to be declared absolutely guiltless. So to drive this a little bit deeper, I want you to imagine that in the hills of North Afghanistan, the ISIS leader, Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi, the he's kind of known as the secret or the silent uh, leader of ISIS, the one who has kind of been leading and kind of rallying all the troops out there and kind of sending them out. He's this heinous leader. I want you to imagine that somehow, with our military intelligence, that we have finally captured the man. Can you imagine? Everybody in Paris, everybody across the world, everybody who, whose heart is being broken because of what is happening, there's this rejoicing. He is finally going to get justice, right? So we decide we're going to fly him back to the United States. We are going to put him on the stand. We are going to make him testify. Every TV station in the entire world would be covering this trial. He's going to be brought to justice finally. Finally. Now imagine that the President of the United States, and I know some of you are going to say, oh, this is going to be an Obama thing. Get President. Think President in general. The President of the United States makes a stunning decision that in order to bring about peace in the Middle East, he's going to summarily pardon him of all charges. All charges. He clears him. And then he goes even further. He gives Abu honorary citizenship and creates a new cabinet position, director of Middle East Relations, to which he appoints Abu. What would the headline say? What would you say? You'd be... In Are you serious? What is wrong with this present administration that this man has killed thousands of people in the name of Islam and you are going to allow him to live? You have wiped him, summarily cleared him of all charges? Are you serious? What kind of freaking idiot are you? Who would say such a ludicrous thing? God. God would do such a ludicrous thing. And friends, that is what has happened to you. Think about that. It should be no surprise to you that when Paul describes what happens on the cross, that he, he, he uses this word called scandalon. What word do you hear in there? Scandal. Quite an appropriate word to use. God calls you morally pure absolutely faultless and there is no guilt whatsoever and it's a scandal of grace for him to say this about you it's a scandal are you serious these people are enemies of god but he has given his son in such a way that they are now holy and blameless and above reproach that is an absolute scandal that's the scandal of the gospel That God's mercy and God's grace is so rich that he changes people's position. And we are no longer enemies of God, but children and friends and co-heirs with Christ. Don't ever forget that. In fact, I would love for that to impact the way that you look at people that you interact with every day, but then it goes to the second major point, where Paul says, "Don't let go." Verse twenty three, Paul kind of brings uh, Paul's point. brings Verse twenty three brings Paul's point to this sharp and kind of clear conclusion of, "Don't, don't let go of the gospel. Keep holding on to the gospel." Everything that he had just told them about in verses 21 and 22 is now focused in this final exhortation and this final teaching. Now what we have here is is an important warning passage written to believers about the the perils, the dangers of falling away from him. He's saying, listen, all you who are in Christ, I need to give you a warning, a very clear warning about falling away from Christ. And but how he does this, if you look at it, kind of makes you wonder what is he really saying here? Let me just read the verse. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. If indeed you kind of hold fast and stay, stay the course. In my American ears, I hear a little bit of sarcasm. A little bit of... If indeed, we know, we know about you. I know your story. If it's possible. But what... So we kind of raises these questions. Does Paul think that these people can lose their reconciliation, their, their their right standing with God? Does he think that it's possible for a believer to even permanently fall away from Christ? Does he... Why does he make the reconciliation of verses 21 and 22 seem to be kind of conditional statements? If you, if. Why is that in there? And how does this passage fit in with other passages that seem to indicate the security of believers or the perseverance of the saints? So there's three things that I want you to at least kind of pick up on this. First, it's clear to me. Absolutely clear to me, and I have deep convictions about this, that the Bible teaches that those who genuinely receive Christ, genuinely receive Christ, are eternally secure. Why? Because it is God who does the work of justification, not mankind. Secondly, those who are genuinely genuinely saved, persevered to the very end. It's called the perseverance of the saints. In other words, while they are not yet perfect, no one here is, while they're not yet perfect, their faith in Christ remains because they have been born again by God and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, We we need to know that God frequently uses warnings to those who He knows will persevere as a means of motivating them and cautioning them just to stay diligent, diligent. stay in it. In other words, the, the warning serves as a vehicle, a vehicle to guard them from doing what the warning suggests. Charles Spurgeon Uh, wrestled with this idea and gave the following counsel. But what if those cautions that he's giving are the means in the hand of God of keeping people from wandering? What if they are used to excite a holy fear in the minds of his children and so become the means of preventing the evil which they denounce? My favorite verse to show this to you is, is Hebrews 6, verse 9, where the writer, after giving probably some of the most scariest kind of warnings, uh, warning passages in the whole Bible, in Hebrew, just read Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 sometime, he finally comes to the end of that warning passage and he says, even though we speak like this, even though I'm talking really hard towards you and giving you a lot of warning and they're pretty, pretty stern. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany, accompany salvation. So I even know this as a a father, and many of you may may have heard this as a child, or maybe you've used this even tactic yourself. I make extreme examples to make a point. Some of you might already be going, I know what he's going to say, you know? Knowing even, you make these extreme examples, uh, knowing that it'll never apply to them, like, listen son, the reason we are saying these things is because we don't want you ending up in prison we don't want you to get hit by a car you keep doing that you know what's gonna happen And we go to these extreme kind of examples just to make a point as a warning knowing that more than likely my child ill will never be a prisoner right but we're trying to get a point across really heavy-handedly as a warning don't do this, but I know that you're not. So this approach, this warning about what you, you, you won't do is basically verified in the language of, of verse 23. If you can also be translated as provided that. And that does not necessarily express doubt at all. The tone in the Greek language is actually expressing confidence. Confidence. It's saying, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will, it's that father saying, listen, if you stand, son, if you keep doing this, and I'm sure you will, this will be the result. Therefore, the the admonition here is is to not let go of the gospel and it needs to be seen for what it is it is a powerful warning meant to motivate us to cling passionately to the core of our faith keep holding on to the one who has saved you through the gospel Notice that the verse is is clear, a clear call to not lose hope in the gospel. It's something that that has come to them through the ministry of Paul very clearly. And therefore, he calls them to the following, to to continue, continue, to continue a life marked by a a persevering trust in the gospel. Continue in this. Stay in there. The danger of drifting from the gospel needs to be resisted at all costs. Stay in it. There's this, you hear in there, be stable. Be steadfast. Two words which are related to the idea of a foundation of a house. Something very strong, something very solid, something very sure. And there's two texts that kind of shed some light on this idea of the gospel being the the key of steadfastness. The first one comes from 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Or or you get 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So the church is a pillar, it's a buttress, a form of steadfastness, of truth, because the gospel is at its heart. When a church loses the focus on the gospel, she loses the, her power, the power to speak the truth. Further, individual believers are called to live in light of the power of the gospel. They are to be steadfast in the gospel while continuing on in their service to Christ. So I want to call you today to not let go of the gospel. The simple message that Jesus came to save sinners, and here's how I would like you to do it. First, rehearse the gospel often. Keep the main one, Jesus Christ, the main thing. Rehearse that. The gospel is so much more than just knowing that you're going to heaven. It's the message that Jesus can make the enemies of God His friends. Rehearse that over and over and over. Secondly, use your past. but don't let it use you. Use it to glorify God. Don't glory in it or magnify it. When you share your testimony, your past is the vehicle that God has used to bring you to Him. But don't glory in your past. Glory in your Redeemer. don't forget about your past remember where you were where you were and rejoice in what god has done in you every once in a while i'll see a, a bumper sticker which are just terrible statements in general i just need to say that and you often regret putting them on your back of your car because you voted for the wrong political person or you just put it on there in college and you go i can never take this thing off now or it's just a dumb a good statement at one time now you realize i was really stupid But you'll see uh, kind of bumper stickers or t-shirts that say, when Satan reminds you about your past, remind him about his future. So some of you have have heard that. That's okay. It's decent. But I'd rather say, when Satan reminds you about your past, remind your heart about the gospel. Remind your heart about the gospel. Preach the gospel, to your heart. Preach the gospel to your heart. Third, learn to connect life to the gospel. I think this is the hardest thing, for, especially for those of us growing up in the church, learning how to connect the gospel to everyday life, right? Well, I've been saved by Jesus. Now I go on with becoming a better person. Don't separate trusting Jesus in the details of life from the beauty and the power of the gospel keep going back to the foundation of your hope namely that Jesus Christ is worthy of your trust trust in him to believe to help you be victorious over sin or to help him love your spouse or to to trust him that he's got a good good plan for your life even though it looks like everything is falling apart help trust him to help you trust in his perfect timing. All of this is grounded in the gospel. And fourthly, when you are tempted to quit, cling to the gospel. The hope of the gospel is a firm safety line in the midst of hard times and storms wrap yourself up in the gospel think of yourself as mountain climbing and you would never climb one of those steep mountains that go up like this without any kind of harness any kind of rope any kind of belaying system any kind of anything else like that anybody who does is just a pure idiot right and so you you're scared of heights in the first place so the thing that you need is a firm secure line That when the winds of life, the storms of life hit, you are holding on to a line that is secure, and that line is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you are tempted to quit, cling to the gospel. Hold tightly to it. Come back to the truth that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can can separate you. Nothing. And some of you just need to hear the simple word from God today. Friends, that the gospel has you covered. The gospel has you covered. So keep going. Keep walking. Keep running. You're secure. You're tied in. There's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. There's nothing that you can do. So keep working. Keep struggling. Keep in it. When it's bad, when it's good, when it's normal, stay in it. Cling to the gospel. Hold on to that. When, you're, when your marriage is hitting the rocks, when your kids are going awry, when the work looks like it's terrible, when it's absolutely nebulous about what tomorrow is going to bring, cling to the gospel. Hold on to the line that will never let you go. Hold on because he will never fail you. Don't forget and don't let go. And all God's people said let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you will never, ever fail us. We thank you that you have made us from enemies into friends, that we are no longer at opposition to You. There is no separation. The veil has been torn, and we have access to You, Father, through Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can boldly go into Your presence holy, blameless, and above reproach because of the good news of Jesus Christ. So God, may that take root in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives? Would you remind us constantly about this truth? And God, would you also remind us what this does to us, not only individually, but what this does to us corporately? That those of us who are in Christ, we are no longer enemies, but we are brothers and sisters. In Christ Jesus. For this we give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.